Disrupting Japan, Episode 35. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Our guest today, William Saito, is changing Japan from the inside. He's an advisor to the Japanese government on all things technology, and although he's a big fan of disruptive innovation, he's convinced that small, sustaining, incremental innovations are the way to go. Or rather, that's the way things are already going here in Japan. We talk about the challenges being faced by Japanese startup founders, corporate executives, government bureaucrats, and talk about the best way that they can all work together to solve these problems. He's an interesting guy, and as he tells his story, you'll see that he's clearly not afraid of challenges. And since he's currently trying to change the way the Japanese government operates, that's definitely a good thing. But it's best if you hear it directly from William. So let's get right to the interview. Okay, I'm sitting here with William Saito, a successful entrepreneur, currently president of Intecur Consultancy, a special advisor to the Cabinet Office for Government in Japan, lecturer at both KO and University of Tokyo. And in truth, I'm just going to leave out a whole lot of other things so we can actually have time for the interview. Sure. <laughs> But、uh, thanks for sitting down and, and talking with us today. No, no, my pleasure. Okay. Well, listen, let's, let's back up a little bit. Because you started entrepreneurship at a really early age.、Mm-hmm. You started in high, your first company in high school with、right. a friend, right? Right. Can you tell me a bit about that? Well, no, it, it was、uh, back then when、uh, nerd wasn't, being a nerd wasn't such a cool thing, and、uh, <laughs> we were lower than the chess club in the,、uh, the pecking order of things. I remember it well. <laughs> yeah. And、uh, the, we found that、uh, just using our fingertips, we could actually create something that people wanted to pay money for. And that was an interesting concept that、uh, had a lot of demand,、uh, still does today. How did you do that? How did you go from nerdy high school student to actually to, to running a business? I actually don't think anything has changed. So, in my <laughs> case,、uh, it was never the fact that I wanted to start a business so that you had the CEO title or that you were president of something. It was and still continues to be this day that、uh, we did something that we liked, that we were making a difference and we were very passionate about. And I think. The people who really succeed in the end are the people who believe in it and who have that passion, and money tends to just be a bonus. So, even to this day, I still think、uh, I'm doing entrepreneurial activities and being very entrepreneurial in whatever I do、uh, because you know, that's what makes life fun and you want to do new things. It's easy to say when you're in high school, but it sounds like there was no grand plan. It was putting one, step, one foot in front of the other and, and taking advantages of the opportunities in front of you. It's not that there wasn't the big grand plan. It was perhaps that it was even more grand than、uh, one would think. And even back then, ICT was making a difference. And a high school kid in his room can actually create something of value without、uh, big machines and, 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 and factories, per se. By putting together algorithms, you could actually benefit people and do new things. And、mm. so. Uh, when that ability became apparent, that grand plan of let's try to change the world was the big dream where might as well make a difference and that you're actually able to do it. But you pursued this through not only high school, but your college as well. Right. And 
it evolved into, uh, well, you ended up creating a fingerprint recognition system. Right. But was this whole time, because, I mean, you've got uh, almost this parallel track of your life going on. Right. You've got university, and this was, you know, back before it was cool to start your own companies in, in college. What was the, There must have been some, some conflict there. I mean, did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur, or did you, were you, like, split in your opinion? No, there was never a split. Uh, it was one of those things back then in California where if you had Asian parents, they wanted you to be a medical doctor, <laughs> and... You know, as the good son, uh, one just really made that into reality, and uh, I did that, and I never really had any hesitations to appease my parents by, by becoming that doctor, but I already knew from the very beginning that that wasn't going to be my lifelong career either. But when you said you did that, what do you, what do you mean? To check that box for your parents. To, right. to, to, to be a, become a medical doctor. So, so you, you attended med school? I went to med school, I graduated, I became a doctor uh, for one whole day, quit. You, you, so you just literally were just checking the box? Yes, and I was literally checking the box. <laughs> well, I guess they didn't say how long they wanted you to Unfortunately, they forgot that. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is, that is some astounding commitment. So, and well, you were running this company while you were in med school? It was, it, it was both fun, passionate, uh, but at the same time, to be very honest and open... A lot of people see the history of, of what I did on the web and, and so on, and it's, it's, it's very polished and very clean, and oh, he did the fingerprint thing. But in fact, the reality is uh, there were six definite instances where we were technically in bankruptcy, where we failed and, made, you know, and, and, and the product or the service that we did did not work out. But it was part of that, too. It was the perseverance that if we stopped there, then we would have really gone out of business and it would have been a complete failure where something drives you and you pivot. It's a cool word now, but you pivot to then use that core technology and, and, and repurpose it for something else. And we, and, and we did it six times. So we were very, very, very lucky. And on the seventh time, we were finally able to create something that, uh, that we became famous for. Well, you know, that's something I think a lot of people who have not been through this process don't appreciate, that often the difference between success and failure is you can be on one inch, one inch on either side of that line. Yep. And if you're one inch on the failure line, no one's returning your phone calls. If you're one inch over on the success line, everyone's asking you to speak at conferences and to tell you your, their, your secrets of success. Right. But when you're in the mid of, middle of it, it really is only an inch difference. It can go either way sometimes. Well, and, and I, I think the adage is true where if you win the lottery, you will, you will uh, file for personal bankruptcy in uh, three years. And, and the point there is it's easy come, easy go. And yeah. when you see this and you see these ventures that are actually long-sustaining, it's people who have never had it easy. They go through these trials. They go through all sorts of misfortune. Uh, entrepreneur sounds really cool and interesting and like uh, glamorous at the end for those who succeed. But I will tell you, 98% of the time, it's pretty dark and ugly. And it's how you overcome that and in the end, uh, you know, find that winning solution. So most of it is persevering. Do you find yourself sometimes having to uh, dissuade people from doing it? To say, well, wait, now the reality is that this is really hard. Let me explain what you're getting yourself into. Well, no, actually, I don't think I've ever dissuaded anybody from becoming an entrepreneur because the other flip side to it is life in general is, is hard in many cases. Japan True. is actually uh, very well endowed in that you could have a perfectly good life being the quote-unquote salaryman and keeping your head uh, 
your, your head to the ground and, and, and not stirring any waves. But at the end of the day, when you, know, you have uh, time to reflect and go, what is life all about? What am I doing? What purpose is this? And you net all that out. I think everybody goes through hardships and stuff. But if the hardship doesn't have an end result or a meaning, then it's just uh, hardship. Yeah. So I, I, I think that you know, what the entrepreneur thing does is, yeah, it's tough. But it's like tough like anything. You have it's a tough. purpose. Right. There's so a it, reason it, behind it. it, it, it it's, it's tough working for a company, but it, it, the toughness there is that you're not necessarily in control of your destiny there. Right. When you sold it, you sold to Microsoft. Yep. Someone told me that you just emailed Bill Gates, but I assume it was something more complex how that deal got done. Well, no, it was a bit more complex. <laughs> yeah, I would hope so. And the relationship with Bill started you know, many years before that. Okay. And so it was a relationship that was built up and, you know, working with Microsoft at many different levels uh, and really learning from the Microsoft model of creating a platform and being really at the uh, centerpiece of, of how the IT industry was forming. And so you put yourself in a business where people have to pass through you. Hmm. Uh, you and Microsoft have been working together for years, so this was not an unexpected that is correct. result. Right. But after the acquisition, you didn't join Microsoft. You, you came back to Japan. Well, I guess two different questions. Why didn't you join Microsoft, and what brought you back to Japan? That's a good question. I think that there was a hesitation in part of me where I've actually never worked for a real company prior to that. Right? Mm. So to work for a large behemoth and have, actually have a boss and so on, um, I wasn't in any rush to do so. The other aspect is, given that I was going through medical school and also running a company, I've never actually was able to enjoy life as an adult, you know, drink the margarita by the poolside kind of thing. Uh, was just this uh, fictional concept. So some part of me said, well, you know, I might want to try that a little bit. And I tried to take a year off, but, but actually failed miserably at that and found that it's actually quite overrated. You failed at relaxing? You failed at relaxing. <laughs> so it occurred to me, what am I going to do here? Am I just going to bum around or what? And, and I realized that my company was actually formed and its success was really based on the opportunities that various Japanese companies gave me, you know, from when I was a teenager. Right. And it occurred to me that these opportunities aren't given to the teenagers of Japan today, or, or, or for people in their 20s for that matter. And that I thought, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of my duty to give back to Japan and to that generation, to give them that chance that I got. And that it would be very unfair if I just took and never really gave back to that next generation. So I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just spend my retirement in Japan as a venture capitalist. You're, you're having a very busy retirement. Yes, this is true. I've never been busier <laughs> probably in my life right now. So it's probably some bad disease not being able to settle down. <laughs> some, some character defect that just won't yeah. let you switch off. Yeah. You're working now very closely with a lot of different parts of the government. From my perspective, it would seem that going from running your own company, where you are very much in control of your destiny, for better or worse, to working within the government has got to be about a completely diametrically opposed situations in terms of effectiveness and the types of people you're working with. How did you make that transition without going absolutely crazy? The big moment that I think changed me to shift focus to government was probably after March 11th. The big earthquake. The big earthquake. What happened was um, soon thereafter... Uh, one of my medical school professors became the uh, chairman of the National Diets Investigation of the Nuclear Accident. 
And incredibly, this was the very first accident investigation board by the Japanese government ever. Right. right. There was a first independent... Yes, ever. Outside... Yeah. Not, not modern history, not ancient history, ever in Japan. So Japan have. is not known as being an open society in right. this way. Professor Kurokawa, who I've known for many, many years, basically comes to me and says that, uh, yeah, we have to create a uh, very first of its kind accident investigation board in uh, the National Diet, probably one of the most unentrepreneurial entities on the planet. Mm. Through that process itself, because we're doing something new, Japan, Japan is very abhorrent to new things, but especially in government. My uh, 30-odd years of preparation was really for this time in that I was using every ounce of entrepreneurial experience to try to do something new within this entity to stand up an organization. Uh, I could easily say that it was probably my most entrepreneurial experience in my life because of all the things, the new rulemakings, the, the, the corners that had to be cut, the, the red tape that had to be you know, gone through, the bureaucracy that had to be fixed because we only had a short limit of time. And so... That was probably my most entrepreneurial activity uh, in recent memory. But I, I can see that being an incredible challenge, both in terms of a difficult challenge that has an important purpose at the end. Yep. But a lot of the people around you are career bureaucrats yep. and career yep. politicians. Yep. 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 And I don't imagine they were seeing the, the same opportunities that you were. Sure, no. And, and they were always you know, impediments. Not, not in a malicious way, but that's your job. Yeah. It's, it's always because of I used really the original French meaning of entrepreneurism. It initially meant uh, more of a change maker. That mm -hmm. Someone takes an idea and, and actually executes on this and, and does something different. Not necessarily about ventures. It's not necessarily about starting a new company. It's, it's really the ability to execute on an idea and, and to make change and do new things. And so by that very definition, I think that the National Diet of Japan was uh, really ripe for change that it became ossified, it was very bureaucratic, uh, the, 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 the people working with it did not have any malicious intent, but in effect they became very lazy in that they didn't want to do new things, take risks, fail, whatever. Right. And I could understand that, given the hierarchy. But we had a mission to do. We had, we had uh, a 10-month window to do the investigation and issue a report. Fixed timeline, no excuses, had to get it done, it was a law. I had a boss uh, that, for anybody who knows, Dr. Kurokawa does not take any excuses for things that, you know, you just have to get it done. Yeah, I had to basically do lots of acrobatics to get even simple things done. But it was the entrepreneurial way that I approached it, I think, that allowed us to do what to do, but it also gave certain bureaucrats ideas of going, oh, that's interesting. That, that, I, did, I didn't realize that might be a different way of approaching the problem and addressing it instead of always just going and coming out with reasons of why you can't do it. I really want to dig down and, and talk about the way that startups and government can work together because the fundamental problem I see is, I mean, there's no ill intent. I mean, you've got startup founders who are generally focused on a very specialized product, uh, making changes quickly. If something doesn't work, they can walk away from it. And you've got a bureaucracy who's focused on delivering a, a very standardized product to many, many, many people. Everyone's underfunded. They can't just walk away from it. How do we get these groups working together? Right. So the, the, one of the problems in Japan that used to be its strength is that the bureaucrats were the elites of the countries. They graduate Tokyo University. They work their, their butts off. And you know, they do a very good job of getting a fixed thing done on a mm. timely basis. 
The problem is ICT has even upended uh, the Japanese government, and things happen in a much faster way. And the problem is ICT does not uh, respect sovereignty. So, you know, global issues affect things in Japan very, very quickly. Right. Much faster than at the uh, excessive meetings that the Japanese like to do in making decisions. I think that, yeah, this entrepreneurial, outside, refreshing thinking is, is more needed in government right now to get people uses. And it doesn't happen in countries like the United States because in the United States, even the bureaucrats, people who work uh, in, in the Hill, in various, you know, the State Department or, right. or whatever, whatever department in the United States, I think the United States has a much more open door, revolving door policy where you have people go in and out of government into private industries and, and, and they, get to, they get to cross-pollinize their different ideas. And so obviously hmm. it's not perfect. But, you know, I know many cases where many friends of mine have gone from Silicon Valley, done their ventures and stuff, and now are in government, cross-pollinating those ideas and so on. And government has become receptive and going, huh, that's an interesting way of doing things as long as it doesn't break the law. Let's try these different ways of innovation or, you know, how to do processes and things differently. In America, for example, particularly at the local level, there's been organizations like Code for America yep. that has gotten very widespread adoption. Yep. Are there programs like that in Japan? And do you think they'd be welcomed here? There are, but I mean, if you think about things that have to happen top down, if you look at how the U.S. system works, where you have uh, cabinet members or secretaries of such and such right. or department heads, a lot of them tend to come from uh, private industry, and they're appointed or presidentially appointed, or they're hired from from off the street. This is important because that adds perspective and keeps things fresh and that you could bring these different styles of work into government. But it keeps things stirred up. It keeps, yeah, there's, there's a yeah. nice tension there. There's a change agent built into right. it. Whereas Japan, career bureaucrats are always career bureaucrats and it's taboo to go back and forth industry and, and government right. that you have these government people. But I will tell you, if they're just government for the last 40 years, their thinking is going to be very uh, narrow-minded and they don't have much opportunity for real input or, you know, Exchanging of, of the latest grid. I mean, do you see that changing? That, that seems like one of the last things that's going to change in Japan. I, I think it's changing at the very least for having some crazy guy like me being in a position that I am. So the very fact that they are going to outside for consulting and advice and acting on that is a good sign. I think I represent something that's very, very unusual in Japan right now. And I don't know if Prime Minister made a mistake, but <laughs> I am the uh, youngest in Japanese history to have this title of mine. I am probably going above and beyond the definition that was originally intended for my role, but really shaking up things. And, you know, I've been doing this for three years. Uh, I serve at the pleasure of the prime minister. I've gone through three ministers, so I've outlasted a lot of the cabinet here, and I'm still here. And so you must be doing something right. I don't know. That or, you know, he finds it entertaining. But <laughs> and, and that this is having small changes in certain structures and stuff. I've worked with the government of Osaka, and they're very active in trying to get entrepreneurial input into the way the government works. And there's been this sort of impedance mismatch, getting bureaucrats to talk to startup founders, even when both of them enter into the discussion with the best of intentions. Yep. Can you think of anything practical or any type of programs that could help governments and startups work together? In a Japanese context? Yeah. Under the rules and regulations that exist in Japan right now, there seems to be this taboo line where, you know, that's not supposed to, like, cross-mix and yeah. so on. 
but I think it's, it's really having a mechanism where one can freely communicate and, and explain and understand why each of the, whether it's a government or business end, they're making the decisions they're doing, the reasoning behind that, and how you could work through it. The problem is, it's not businesses' job to educate government. And governments uh, really don't understand sometimes the business needs because they don't come from that area. So right. at a local level, I would find that tough. At a national level, I'm integrating it in because it's easier to have hearings, or it's easier to have stuff on the record, it's easier to get more exposure. It's easier to enact things so that you have a bigger view on whether it's Medi or you know, the Ministry of Education in getting things in there. It's a much bigger lever at the national level. Yeah, plus, more... you know, plus you have funding opportunities that you could use to, to either be the carrot or the whip. Well, hopefully we're going to see more uh, outside advisors and outside consultants for government agencies. I mean, I think that's only a good thing. Yeah, I, I do too, and I think the key word there is outside, because a lot of people who become advisors used to be X something in, right. within that entity, <laughs> and then it's just really uh, self-serving. Do you ever miss programming, the, the simplicity of it? I think that it never leaves you in a sense, you know, whether it's problem solving or organizing your emails or you know, doing things. Having that basic understanding, I think, is helpful, but if I were to step back a little bit, I think going through medical school also helped out in terms of, of defining the unknown, solving things that you can't see directly, asking questions. These are all skills that doctors play. And so I think, you know, from that perspective, medical training was very essential for um, really helping entrepreneurs. Huh. But I guess it makes sense. It is, it's problem solving, exploration. Yep. Asking yeah. questions. Shifting gears a bit, you've talked a lot about the importance of not just teamwork, but the importance of teams rather than the traditional command and control framework yep. inside Japan. Startups in Japan really seem to be embracing this idea of, of teams. And you're seeing a lot more startups being founded by teams rather than solo founders, uh, which I think is very encouraging. At the larger enterprises that you deal with day to day and even in government, have they embraced this, this concept of, of teams or is the old hierarchical structure still the only way things get done? Yeah, no, it's unfortunate. Uh, so on one level, I don't know if I had a big impact on it, but you know, I did sell over 120,000 copies of my book on teams, which kind of shows that I guess there was interest in that team concept. I think it's very fundamental and very interesting and very at the root of a lot of Japan's successes. If you look at the history of successful Japanese companies that are sustaining, whether it's the Sonys or the Sharps or the Toyotas, they're all founded by teams. And so this is a concept that I tell people in Japan, you know, was uh, at the root of Japan's success, but that the Japanese have tended to forget that. And you have these uh, management systems which uh, highlight people, singular, almost uh, deity-like entities who have never failed before. And I'm telling people that, uh, no, that's probably the worst type of person you want to be leading the organization because now they're too afraid to fail, they're put in the spotlight, you know, that, you know. That's that, true. In fact, uh, Toyota, the, the Toyota production and quality assurance system was built entirely on empowering teams yes. and allowing individuals within the teams yep. to change the way or suggest change. So and somehow we've, we've lost that. The team building, the five whys, these various MBA-type cliches that you hear, they were actually all started in Japan, and the Japanese, uh, ironically, have forgotten many of them. Yeah, um, hopefully they'll be getting it back. But, I mean, it certainly is changing on the startup level. 
the new founders definitely get the idea. Right. So let's talk about startups in Japan a bit. So you mentioned that your, your parents didn't consider startup founder a valid career option. I, I assume they've changed their minds at this point. I don't know, but maybe. <laughs> I think you turned out okay. Do you think the opinions of parents in Japan are changing? Is the idea of starting a company becoming more viable? I think the environment is conducive to it, but ironically, I think the parents, or more namely the moms who actually have control over this, the impression has become a little bit more dire in that if the moms had their way, they're worried about, you know, especially their sons going off the rails and not joining what they call the escalator here right. and, and having a proper job and, and getting promoted. Women who aren't bound by this because they're put under a, a, a different social pressure, many who get it and go, wait, why do, I have to, you know, why do I have to succumb to that? They actually go out, study overseas, and, and start businesses at a, at a much higher rate, and they, they actually, at the end, uh, are more successful as well. Well, actually, that's interesting, because you've spoken a lot about the importance of, of women and entrepreneurship in Japan. Prime Minister Abe has also spoken quite a bit about the importance of it. I do notice there's a high percentage of women entrepreneurs here. Yep. Do you think it is just that this is the way that they can cut through a lot of the hierarchy and, and social standards and just focus on results? Or is it more of a push situation where they don't really have other options and this is kind of the best one in front of them? From the uh, women perspective, I really think that uh, Statistically, it just makes sense because, one, there are more of them. Yeah. They're smarter than the men because they go to a school an average of uh, 3.4 years longer than the men. Really? And Yes. Huh. Uh, from, you know, this is from Ministry of Education. Uh, and the other thing here is they're naturally better communicators. And because they don't have the social pressures from their moms, especially, uh, they're, they're free to do things under the radar, like go overseas and study or, or, or learn okay. hobbies or whatever. So... The women who get it and go, you know, screw this, I'm not going to serve tea and then get married and be in the house kind of thing, they uh, actually are, are feel more empowered to start these businesses. And because they have these basic skills that are better than the men, they do, you know, at least in a Japanese context, much better, especially initially, in starting these companies. And huh. so it just makes obvious sense to do this. Because they have this certain pressure to succeed and keep learning, there's always this continual growth path. They communicate and make and grow their networks. They know when to reach out for help. All these things that uh, a lot of Japanese men uh, are not necessarily the strongest in. So, uh, yeah, I see tremendous potential and opportunity there. Okay. On a macro level, are there particular areas of the Japanese economy or particular types of Japanese startups that you are especially optimistic about? It, it comes down to that question of, I see a huge potential here where... Japan is very well educated, the base education is very strong, infrastructure is very solid, government is stable, crime is low. If you think about it, there are very few countries that actually say that. Oh, yeah. You know, incidents in Europe, Southeast Asia is a little bit iffy. But isn't the, the flip side of that stability no, and is it, that... And it leads to complacency yeah. and all this. But, but, but what I see in this, though, is uh, a, a huge opportunity. We also have one of the fastest aging and shrinking populations in the world. Mm. The areas that I invest in, and, and many of the Japanese don't even know this yet, but what many of the Japanese don't realize is this is a big issue. And because the Japanese are the first to experience it, which is a good thing, they are actually solving this bit by bit. 
What do you mean? Whether it's healthcare, whether it's elderly care, whether it's medicine, whether it's all these things to help the aged, uh, there are bits and pieces here. Now, so, so do you think that where America tends to be very focused on disruptive innovation, like yep. overturning yep. the status quo, do yep. you think Japan is going down a path more of sustaining innovations? Um, well, so the increment, yeah. smaller... so, so, so if you look at this, and, and I teach this a lot, and you look at the, the difference between incremental and disruptive innovation, this is fine. And, you know, everybody has their cup of tea. But what you notice, though, is that the disruptive innovations happen on a haphazard basis. When right. they're big, they're big. Uh, incremental innovation may not be sexy sometimes, but over the long haul, the delta that you get is, could be as large as a disruptive innovation. Hmm. Uh, and, and so, you know, of course, I like disruptive innovations because it could take out whole industries and it does really new things and so on. Change happens fast that way. Yeah, but it's really risky and you have to have the mindset for it, thick skin, so on. But the incremental innovation I think Japan is optimized for. I'm neither pro or negative for either way. Obviously, I'm more the disruptive innovation and problem maker, upset industry kind of guy anyway. Right. But Japan is definitely a, a steady Kaizen type culture where innovation is on a steady base. A lot of incremental innovation, if you look at it from a decade type snapshot, can look like disruptive innovation. Sure. In the net. It can be a huge change eventually. Right. So one of the things that I always talk about is that Japan, because of its demographics and its aging and shrinking population, it's thrown a lot of economic assumptions on its head. Things like deflation and how that's looked at, monetary policy, how that's looked at, capitalism is turned on its head, democracy is turned on its head. And Japan is one of the first countries to experience this, so it had this hurdle. So you could attribute a lot of the last 20 years to this uh, really anchor that's mm -hmm. been weighing it down. But on the other hand, because the Japanese are the first to experience this and we don't throw our grandparents out onto the streets, there are solutions that are being developed to address this situation. So why is this important? It's important because in the next 10, 15 years, starting with places like Western Europe, Korea, China, the United States, they're all going to be aging right, much yeah. more abruptly than Japan. And so guess what? The Japanese have figured this out in terms of new products and services because they've had the last 20, 30 years to figure this out. It'll be one of the first company, countries to find ways to address this uh, where it's going to be probably the biggest uh, export market, export of technologies and services uh, for other countries here. So I see that as a tremendous opportunity. Do you think that the Japanese approach to innovation, do you think there's a greater effort here to slot a particular innovation into a broader societal need and to judge it based on whether it's good for society as a whole? No, so no? that's the thing. I, I think there's a huge opportunity that a lot of Japanese who are solving this issue uh, actually don't see the big picture that I just explained. They're doing it just for the sake of doing it. Okay. But I, the opportunity that I see here is that if you get these uh, distinct components and parts here of what people are doing, time together to address this aging problem, you will have a pretty good business here. Okay, so it's not a uniquely Japanese thing. It's the same market forces that exist. Everywhere, it's just Japan is the first developed nation to Go through run this. up against this. Yeah, and, and, and that they're not realizing yet, serendipitously, they're addressing it in piecemeal. But if you see the bigger picture, this is going to be a very, very big problem. Today, we have uh, four kids in their mid-40s and 50s taking care of one elderly person in their 80s. Right. And they're already having a tough time of it. When I'm in my 80s, uh, there's only going to be uh, one person taking care of me, which means no one's taking care of me. Right. That math doesn't work. Yeah. So, uh, we're going to be more reliant on automation and robotics and ICT and all these other things to help that one person take care of me. All or right. I'm screwed. <laughs>
The Abe administration has been extremely outspoken in its support of entrepreneurship and startups and embracing kind of the freelance economy. A lot of government programs to support entrepreneurship, uh, there, there, there can be a lot of money deployed. A lot of the money is not deployed particularly well. It, it goes into construction projects and the, the usual politically connected companies. But what do you think are, are some of the most important effective ways that government can support entrepreneurship. I think I'm a little bit contrarian on this in that the Japanese government, when they have the knee-jerk reaction to help things, they tend to throw a lot of money at it. Yeah. Money is, tends to create moral hazards. From a government role, I'm actually telling people that, no, no, you have to decrease this stupid funding. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to decrease this like sprinkle effect thing of just throwing money around because it's not doing anybody any good in the long run. What we need to do is uh, revise laws and regulations to make things uh, less uh, friction. You know, some of these things, for example, firing people in Japan is very, very tough. Yes, it is. And, you know, if you're an entrepreneurial venture and you're hiring your first couple of people, you may not be the best HR guy in the world. <laughs> and you may hire a few bad apples, but yeah. if you cannot fire them, it saps the hell out of you. So that's one thing that I'm trying to work on and going... This, this protection of the employee is going a little bit too far for allowing entrepreneurs to have a more vibrant company. So that's one. The other one is that, yeah, we all make mistakes. And when you look at the Steve Jobs or you look at any of the successful people in the world today, they've actually failed at something pretty spectacularly at least once before they've become famous in their current known state. Right. In the United States, we have things like the incorporation code where they're their own independent entities and that if it goes bust, yeah, you can kind of walk away from it. The, the KK mentality in, in Japan is somewhat based on that. But if you go to a venture capital or any institution that promotes entrepreneurship, yet they ask you for collateral? For the seed stage funds, that is extremely rare now. But it, it is rare, still, but, but you know... I hear the bank VCs still do that occasionally. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there, there are no real VCs in Japan to the extent a lot of people think. Yeah. But the bank VCs are not real VCs. That, that VC actually means uh, either very cowardly <laughs> or very conservative but it's definitely not venture capital. So I ask what I call my, my magic wand question. Okay. All right. So if I gave you a magic wand and I said you could change one thing about Japan yep. to make it better for startups here, yep. what would you change? What I would do and I'm trying to do is really institute a system where uh, between sometime between high school and the time you graduate college that you spend at least one year overseas. Really? And that'll change Japan miraculously. How so? Uh, at many different levels. One, they would friggin' understand why English is important <laughs> instead of knowing how to take it on the test. Yeah. Number two, I think going overseas, it really enabled people to have context. That a lot of Japanese actually live in their little own bubble and think that this is how the world runs. This is how everybody thinks and this is how everybody has their, their value systems aligned. Do you need to have a first-person experience and realize that, no, oh, people's morals, values, uh, the ways of thinking are different. And so uh, you need to know how to work with them. Number three, I think that by exchanging ideas, having dialogue, communication, being able to debate, negotiate, and these things are key talents that are not taught in Japanese schools that Japanese are very, very bad at. So they lose out when they do go into society, because it's definitely a very global world. Unfortunately, we do not 
now live in an island where we can be self-sustaining just amongst ourselves, that we have to interact with society at large. And without this experience, Japan's going to be screwed. And you know, Japan is the second least diverse country on the planet. It's very dangerous to have people this single-minded here because once what I call this bubble, peaceful bubble that we have here bursts and we succumb to the real winds of uh, global competition, a lot of people are not going to be prepared. Right. And we have this very Japanese thinking still that is actually becoming even more insular these days. It becomes very important to, to really see how the world it is and not necessarily just through media or some other small lens. And I also think that your suggestion of like spending a year abroad, people who do that will bring a different set of problem-solving skills to... Yep either large companies they join or startups they might want to find. Found. Exactly. Yeah. Japan is uh, almost too peaceful, almost too perfect, in that uh, you really don't have to uh, try hard or experiment or problem solve because it's, it's kind of there on a silver platter. Yeah, you need to be trained to be able to expect the unexpected and to be able to overcome that. I, I feel very sorry for people who have not experienced that first time. Okay, listen, thanks so much for, for sitting down with us today. So, no, pleasure. And we're back. I think one of the most important developments we talked about is the newfound willingness for the Japanese government to use outside, truly outside, advisors. Well, I suppose calling it a willingness may be overstating the case of it, since at the moment William seems to be the only one they're listening to at a national level. But still, it's a start. And time will tell whether he turns out to be a black swan or the first robin of spring. That basic openness to new ideas is essential for Japan to move forward as a society. Private sector and startup innovation is taking off here, but it can only take the nation so far. Still, I'm optimistic that the innovative green shoots we see in Japan today will continue to grow and that in 30 years' time, Japan will be a leader, not just in elderly and healthcare tech that William talked about, but in a wide variety of other fields as well. If you've got a story about trying to work with the government as a startup, we'd love to hear about it. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 035 and let us know what you think. And when you drop by, you'll find all the links and sites that William and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.